Oh, Easter Day is so exciting, isn't it? It's a wonderful, wonderful day. Hands up if you prefer Christmas Day. Hands up if you prefer Easter Sunday. Oh, you're a very religious bunch, aren't you? <laughs> Hands up if you enjoy telling fibs in church. For many years, I couldn't get my head around why Easter Day was so exciting. I was little at the time, because uh, Christmas Day, you got more presents, let's be honest. I mean, chocolate's good, but you can only go so far with chocolate, whereas, you know, you remote-controlled chocolate eggs hadn't been invented then. Maybe they have now. Um, but, you know, Christmas always seemed so much more exciting, and the build-up was bigger, and it was more colourful. And, and now, it could be as I've got more spiritual or it could be just that I've got older and my presents are more boring. But um, <laughs> Easter is, is just so exciting. And I'm so thrilled to be here today, to, to be with family and to celebrate uh, and to enjoy the fact that Jesus is risen and he's alive. Uh, and our faith is uh, alive and active and sure and reliable and trustworthy because of what Jesus has done. And, and it's so exciting. We're not, yeah, it's just a great reason to celebrate today. Um, this day is central to the Christian faith, and uh, it's powerful. It, it makes a difference in our lives, and I particularly want to talk today about what happens because Jesus is risen. And I'm going to be taking us through some of John's gospel story. I love the gospel accounts of the resurrection. All the gospels are good, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus in the Bible. Um, they, they're all... Uh, Pretty much about what I'm going to say is it applies to the whole of the story. But I think the resurrection accounts particularly are so honest and so raw and so true. They, they read as they are as first-person eyewitness accounts, some of them. And others are collections of first-person eyewitness accounts. And, and they've left nothing out of the, the rawness of the experience. Just the whole sense that this is... They're confusing for the disciples. Jesus has died. Uh, they followed him for three years. He, uh, Roger and Joy, Roger said they've been involved in the church since 1971. That's a long time. We honor that kind of faithfulness. And, and the disciples have been with Jesus for, for three years. They've got to know him. They've hung out with him and, and not just attended once a week or through several times through the week, but they've been with him through those years listening and learning and, and wondering, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that was sent to bring hope to the nation of Israel and hope to the whole world? Could it be? And for three years they've been puzzling and wrestling through these questions and, and watching as he heals and healing people themselves and, and, and seeing Jesus doing amazing things. And little by little, the pieces have begun to fall into place in their thinking until they've got some kind of perspective of who Jesus is. They think he's the Son of God. Not quite sure what that means yet, but they've been putting all these bits together. And, and then Jesus has moved towards Jerusalem. He's set out to go to Jerusalem, and he's ended up preaching, and he's ended up on trial for claiming certain things, and he's ended up being whipped and beaten. He's ended up going on the cross and dying. And these disciples have given up everything to be with Jesus. They've left businesses, they've left families, they've left all sorts of things, some of them, to, to be with Jesus. They've certainly left reputations and all that they had before. And they've walked with him all these three years. And, 
And really, they've, they've, they've pledged everything to following him. They've trusted him with their future as well as with their day-to-day provision. And, and now he's dead. And the gospel stories, don't gloss over this. This is not some ancient record which is trying to spice everything up and make everybody look cool and clever and, and bright and brave. This is true eyewitness accounts that we've got here. And they're honest and open and raw. And we pick them up and we read about the disciples and their mess. We read of Mary Magdalene, first of all. And the Bible says it was early on Sunday morning. I'm reading from John 20. And it was still dark and Mary had gone to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And she ran and got Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We've got this kind of, um, we can see the, the imagery, can't we, in our minds of these two guys racing and one's either fitter or more enthusiastic and, and gets there first. Uh, and Peter reaches the tomb first and he stoops and look, looks in and sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he doesn't go in. Then Simon, then Simon Peter arrived. Sorry, that was John who arrived. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until then they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. So we've got Mary who rushes to get Peter and John and they rush to, to the to the tomb uh, and John arrives and peeks in but doesn't go in. Peter arrives and bursts in as Peter might do because he's enthusiastic like that uh, and just pushes ahead. Uh, and Peter goes in and sees the tomb and, and it says that John then goes in and believes. Now we don't know what he does with that belief but he believes and it's the, it's the gospel writer who's writing so maybe this is autobiographical in the sense he's just saying well I, I knew at that point, I believed at that point. But this belief doesn't spread to all the disciples. So so Mary, we read at this point, verse 11, is standing outside the tomb crying. She's been to the tomb and she's gone to see the tomb and then she's noticed that the stone isn't there and she's gone away to go and get these disciples and they've now gone and Mary's left again on her own and she's weeping. In every one of the gospel accounts, Mary, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mary's at the tomb, Mary Magdalene. There's differences of perspective in the different gospels, and they portray different things from different angles, but Mary's consistent. She's there in all of them. This woman who, if you'd seen her some years before, you would have said she was a bit of a mess. The Bible describes how she had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She was at least confused, and if nothing else, struggling, but... We don't know much else about Mary other than that she'd been set free by Jesus and since then had pinned her hope on him too. She trusted him and had been part of um, the group that was with Jesus all through this time. In fact, she'd been there consistently. The different Gospels, when you put them together, show that Mary was at the cross. She was there watching as Jesus died. They show that she was there at the tomb when Jesus was placed in the tomb. And she's here again. She's come again to see the tomb. She's come just to be there. 
to see what's going on. And she's been there consistently all the way through. And Mary thinks that they've stolen Jesus' body. When she's asked, why are you crying? She says, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. I don't know where he is. I mean, how cruel would that be? You followed this Jesus for, for three years, or for several, a couple of years at least as part of this, this time, and you've watched as, as he's been arrested and tried and whipped and crucified, the one you loved, and, and now they've desecrated the tomb by stealing the body? How cruel is that? How vindictive. Just leave him dead, would you? Just have some respect. You can imagine what Mary's thinking as she's sobbing and thinking, well, just why? Why would you do that? Is there no dignity, even in death? Can you not just leave him? And she's crying. She's not hoping that Jesus is alive at this point. She knows he's dead. Now, just in case you were wondering, Mary had watched him die. She's, there's no doubt that he's dead. There's no doubt that this Jesus who had taught, who's a historically verifiable person who did exist, who did teach, who did do miracles, who did raise disciples around him, had died. The Romans had crucified him. They were experts at it. They knew what they were doing. They knew that if... if they wanted to hurry the process up. They could go and break the legs of the bodies as, they were, as the people as they were on the cross. And, uh, and that would kind of uh, prevent them being able to raise themselves up to draw breath. And instead, because they, they couldn't draw breath anymore, their lungs would just fill with fluid and they would effectively drown, I suppose, in layman's terms. But this, they knew how to speed up a crucifixion if they needed to. And they'd gone to check that the the people being crucified were, were dying and some of them weren't, so they'd gone to break the legs of each of the three and when they got to Jesus, they discovered he'd already died. And you might think, well, maybe he wasn't dead, but they knew how to make sure and so got a spear and they thrust it into Jesus' side. And the Bible describes how they observed that blood and water flowed and what's happened is the, the sack around the heart's been ruptured and, and fluids are leaking out and it's showing that actually... He's dead. You don't tend to survive putting a spear in your heart. There's some stories about people being shot and, and they've had a, a Bible in a pocket, a breast pocket, in the, in, as a soldier in the war and they, the bullets hit the Bible and, and they've been saved or a, or a badge or something saved them. Great, but not a spear in the heart. That doesn't work so well. He's definitely dead. And she's watched all the way through as his, his cold and dead body is placed in the tomb and she's been there watching. And now all hope has gone. She's despairing. And the tomb has been sealed by officials who knew he was dead. And now the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. And she hears Jesus' voice. She hears Jesus. She doesn't know it's Jesus to start with. And Jesus says, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And again, she thinks it's the gardener. And she says, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. She's not going for a risen savior. She's going for a dead body. She's going to find the one that had died, that she'd watched die, that she'd watched be buried. She's, all hope has gone. 
but at least she can be with him in death. We see that because he lives, Jesus can change despair to hope. Uh, Mary is in despair, but because Jesus has risen, there is still hope. And he calls out, Mary! And she turns and cries, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Oh, what was that moment like? What was that moment like when Mary heard Jesus call her name? Wasn't that amazing? And we weren't there, obviously, but that moment in the garden when all hope has gone and the best she can hope for is that the gardener says, yes, I'll tell you where I've put the body. That's the best she can hope for. And then she hears the word Mary. Wow. And it's her name. And it's spoken in tones that she recognizes. It's spoken by her Savior. It's spoken by her rescuer. It's spoken by the one that freed her from demons. It's spoken by the one that gave her hope and life and meaning. And she hears the voice. And she turns. And she cries out, Rabbi. Jesus says, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go and find my brothers and tell them. Mary found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Because Jesus rose, there is no need to despair ever again. We may struggle. We will struggle. We will go through difficult circumstances. There'll be things that come up that we can't fix. There'll be times when we're in pain. There'll be times when we are suffering. There'll be times when things happen that we go, I haven't got an answer for this and I don't like it and there's no way through. But we are never utterly devoid of hope never because Jesus has risen from the dead and he's alive and just as he called out Mary's name so he knows ours and he calls to us today in similar terms he calls for an encounter with us and even when we grieve even at the end when we've prayed for someone to be healed perhaps and they've died even at the end we do not grieve like those who have no hope Because there is a day when we will see them again, quite possibly, if they knew Jesus, but we'll see him face to face. And we'll see our Savior. And there is hope. Because Jesus is our hope. We see the disciples and the story goes on in John's Gospel. And and the disciples are meeting. The Bible says that Sunday evening the disciples are meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. I don't know if they're despairing. Uh, Peter and John have at least seen uh, the empty tomb. And so they've gone, uh, John's got some kind of faith, but there must be some kind of despondency there as they're, they're still afraid and they're still fearful. They've got Mary's report. But that isn't enough to give them confidence. They're still worried and wondering what's happening next. Mary's story, Simon's story, John's story hasn't yet helped change their fear into something better. And I guess they're wondering, where is he? What's happening? Where's where's he gone? Is he coming? When? When will we see him again? And I I don't want to imagine what the disciples were going through in that moment because there's not so much in the text about that. Uh, But we know that what happened next in the middle of their fearfulness is that Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives. And he's standing there among them and he says this, Peace be with you. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus' presence makes all the difference. And because he is risen, we can have fullness of joy. A joy that overflows. A joy that is wonderful and and wells up within us. Not not a happiness at our circumstances. As you read on the story, the disciples next time they meet are still with the doors locked because they're still concerned about the Jewish leaders coming to get them. So the circumstances haven't changed, but something has changed within them. that The despondency has shifted to joy. And that joy seems to remain even when things get a bit um, hairy for them. Because Jesus has risen, we can be joyful. But of course, there's one that wasn't there at that moment. Uh, when you're reading the Bible, do you, do you identify with particular people as you're reading the different stories? Do you ever do that? It's a great technique for, for getting into the Bible narrative. Otherwise, it's just a book. Uh, when you read it, you can obviously pray that God speaks to you. But another way of getting into the text is to, to just imagine yourself in the scene. Uh, and you might look at the feeding of the 5,000 story and you might be the little boy with his lunch or you might be one of the crowd or you might be the disciples going, we haven't got enough to feed this lot. Uh, you know, whenever, the story, whenever I put myself in the story, I'm never Jesus. And I don't know where you are on, the, on this story as you're running through. Maybe you identify with Mary in despair. Maybe it's with the disciples in a bit of despondency. Maybe you feel like Thomas and you're always the one left outside. You're always the one that someone else seems to have that moment with God that's so exciting and you arrive next week and it's all gone. You know, last week was just amazing. You know, Jesus was here. Wow. And you turn up and the best we've got some good announcements. And you think, what's that all about? Where, where is he? Do you know? Nobody ever gets left out with Jesus. And Thomas <laughs> hears the news that Jesus has arrived and, and, and this is his response. I won't believe it until I see the nail wounds in, in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. We've got no psychoanalysis of what's going on in Thomas's mind but he's been left out and he's saying something around, look, I need to see for myself. I'm not going to, thanks guys, but I'm not going to take your word for it. I want to see. And at least he's got some doubt there. He gets a bit of a bad reputation, doesn't he, Thomas? Doubting Thomas, we call him. He's a bit skeptical at different points in the Gospels. There are some people, of course, and you may either be in this category yourself or know people who are, who love doubt more than truth, who love doubt more than certainty. Because doubts can be, can be quite appealing at times because you can just poke questions and you never have to believe anything. But it doesn't leave you anywhere. It doesn't leave you anything to base your life on. It doesn't leave you anything to say, this is the core of what I believe to be true. And all you've got is questions, and questions are fine. Questions can sometimes peel away the rubbish that's around something, but if you end up with nothing every time, life is very meaningless and very hollow. I want to encourage you by saying that Jesus knows what your doubts are. And what my doubts are. He knows our questions. Because this is Thomas's quote. And then, of course, Jesus turns up. And as he stands amongst them this time, he now says, Okay, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand into the wound. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Jesus knew the comment Thomas had made in the private place behind locked doors. And you may think that's weird. 
That's just a resurrection thing. I tell you, God knows your doubts and he's interested in them. He knows your questions and he hears them and he wants to answer them by presenting himself. This may sound like a weird story, but a a good number of years ago, um, I think about 11 years ago now, I went to a conference in in Lincoln and it was in a, a large church in Lincoln and there was a guy doing some teaching on hearing from God because uh, we believe that God speaks to us today. And this conference was called Prophesy, and it, we'd gone to this conference, a few of us from our church, I've taken a few folk from the church, and uh, we were there. And uh, at the end of the, the, the last day, I think it was, he issued a, an invitation to pray for church leaders. And he... Um, particularly said senior leaders. Now, I wasn't a senior leader at this point. I was an associate leader in a church, and, and I thought that excluded me, and I'm sitting there, and a couple of other people are going, go on, go and get prayed for, go on, go on. And I thought, no, I don't fit the criteria. I'll sit here, thank you very much. But I felt uncomfortable, and I thought, no, I think I do actually need to go and get prayed for. So um, went to the back and paced around, kind of hoping that I would, the feeling would go away and I could just go and sit back down in my seat again. Um, and eventually I plucked up the courage to go and stand at the end of this line. And I thought, I'll stand here. And I was relieved because there was a youth worker three ahead of me who got prayed for. And they didn't get zapped, so it was okay. Because they weren't a senior leader either. So I knew I was going to be all right. Um, and three weeks before this moment, I had been sat in my office in our church building at the time. And I'd been reading some of the script, reading some of the Gospels, and I'd come to an, a bit of the, the Bible which I didn't understand. And it says, the kingdom of heaven is taken by force, and force will advance and take hold of it. And I'd sat, and I'd just simply said, God, what does this mean? That the kingdom of heaven is taken by force, and force will advance and take hold of it. And I'd carried on reading. Three weeks later, I'm in Lincoln, stood at the back of the line, and this man starts to prophesy, speak on God's behalf into my life halfway through the prophecy he says this you've asked me what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is taken by force and forceful men are advancing and taking hold of it he didn't give me the answer (laughs) and he carried on prophesying I knew at that moment that that word was a word from God for me why because I'd said something I'd never asked before in my office three weeks before God picks up on it in a meeting with hundreds of people in Lincoln an hour's drive away My office was not bugged. (laughs) But God knew my doubts. He knew my questions and he knows yours. Don't be afraid to ask. But don't be afraid to go close and stand in a line and go and get the answer. It's not good enough just to to throw questions and demolish without going, okay, I'll put myself in a vulnerable place and try and get the answer to this. Because God knows your heart and he knows your doubts. And he wants to reveal himself to you. And because he's risen, our doubts can become faith. And there are lots of things that if we opened up conversation about all sorts of issues to do with theology or belief or the biblical teaching, we would have slight differences of opinion even in this room. We might have some major differences of opinion, but a lot of those things don't matter. I want to say to you today that at the core of our faith is a living and active faith in the one who came in the one who taught, in the one who healed, in the one who died for us, in the one who rose again. That's the core of our faith. And you may not be sure about what day of the week Jesus is coming back. 
That's probably a good thing because nobody's sure what day of the week Jesus is coming back. You may be unsure about all sorts of bits and pieces of theology, but I want to say that the core of our faith, the bit that you can always come back to and always rely on if you look at it carefully and, and, and investigate it and find yourself trusting in these things, is that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. And that's sure and certain. And if you're not sure about that, investigate it, please. Read the eyewitness accounts, get extra evidence and have a look until you can be sure that he rose again. Because it's true. Final one is Peter. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where you fit, as I said earlier, where you identify in this story, whether it's despair or despondency or doubt like Thomas. Peter, huh. I've done a few kids' events in my time, and uh, often I've gone in as an interviewee, and you get asked things like, what's your most embarrassing moment? And my mind at that point goes blank. Uh, partly because I've spent most of my life avoiding being embarrassed, probably. Um, but because I'm thinking, well, this feels pretty embarrassing, but I can't just say that. Um, you know, and you see, so you try and concoct something, and we're pretty good at covering up our embarrassment. You meet a few people who are seemingly shameless, seemingly bold and, and fearless, and just go for it. And, and they think a thought and it's out of their mouth. And they don't care what anybody thinks. And they're not even harsh. They just, just say it and it's, it's how it is. Now those people are rare. Um, but I suspect even those people have some areas of their lives that they're a little bit embarrassed about. And we're really good at covering up. Ufuk was mentioning this on Friday and talked about how Adam and Eve covered up their shame, their nakedness um, before God. And I think we're pretty good at doing this. I, that's why I love the Bible accounts, you see, because they're honest and real and open and true. Peter's most embarrassing moment's there for us to read. His most embarrassing moment is, is in the gospel. Because when you're someone who's brave and fearless and bold and follows Jesus with all you've got and encourages others to, you don't really want to be the person who denies him, who says, I never knew him. And when someone else asks, you then say, I never knew him. And when someone else asks and says, you're, you're one of that man's followers, aren't you? You go, no, 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 not me. You've got the wrong person. Oh, no, no. That's pretty embarrassing. That's humiliating as a person of faith, as a pillar of the church, as the rock on which <laughs> the church is built to be the one who's so fractured and broken and fragile. It's a brave thing to confess your sin, as the Bible tells us to, to one another that we may be forgiven and healed. It's a good thing to do as well, to confess and be open, to stop hiding. And Peter's story encourages us because his story is written here. But three times Peter, before Jesus' crucifixion, denies that he knew him, denies that he was one of his followers. And Jesus picks this up. And, and after these other resurrection stories, Peter is uh, walking with Jesus along a beach and the three times that Peter has denied Jesus are picked up by three questions Jesus asked, and he just asked, do you love me? Do you love me? We've been hearing through this service about God's love for us. It's interesting, isn't it? That at our most embarrassing moment, our, our greatest weakness, our greatest vulnerability, those bits that Peter wouldn't have wanted anybody else to know perhaps, our shame, 
Jesus deals with it, but in a unique way. How, how would you want your shame to be dealt with if you were Peter? See, it's one of those awkward things, isn't it? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. You're kind of hoping that it's all okay now because he's alive and he's risen. But I would imagine if I was him that I'd be holding back just slightly, wouldn't you? You'd be kind of in the conversation and Jesus is teaching and, and talking about what's happening next and you'd want to know all about the resurrection, but I'd be just holding back very slightly, thinking, when's it going to crop up? Do I bring it up? Do I wait for Jesus to bring it up? Because I'm, he told me, he told me it would happen. That's the worst bit. Jesus even warned Peter. He says, you'll deny me three times. And Peter then still did it. How do I bring this up? And you know that feeling, don't you, when you've got a conversation you need to have that you don't really want to have, that you're hoping somebody else doesn't bring up but does? You ever had that? Or is it just me? It's just me and you're laughing at me, I know, yeah. No, it's that, that awkward moment. And Peter doesn't have to bring it up. But Jesus does in such a genius way. He doesn't say, Peter, you know that thing I told you not to do? How many of us parents would have had that conversation? Now, sit down, son, I told you. I even said, I warned you beforehand and you did it anyway. Now, what do we do in these situations? We learn from it, don't we, son? That's right. And you, you could have had that kind of positive conversation. <laughs> Jesus doesn't. He just says, do you love me? It's one denial. Peter, do you love me? It's another denial. Do you love me? It's another denial. I want to say to you today, I don't know what your most embarrassing moment is. I don't know what it is that before God you want to cover up with leaves. You want to cover up and hope that he doesn't mention it. And hope that you don't have to, but it's still there and you're still ashamed of it. He already knows. And actually, if you just get into his presence, it's very likely he'll come up with another question that just strikes it off. Now, what is it that you think is unforgivable? It isn't because he's risen. What is it that you think fills you with shame? It doesn't need to because he's risen. And because he wipes off our doubt, he wipes off our shame, he wipes off our despair, he makes a difference. And even denial, even those most embarrassing moments Jesus can deal with because he's risen. The power is not in hiding our shame. It's in coming to Jesus and letting him deal with it. Where does all this leave us with? It leaves us with a risen Messiah. The core of our faith as Christians is based on one who lives today and is risen and alive. And if you're not sure about that, please read the gospel stories. You'll read that Jesus was alive and then was killed. That that killing was tested, that he was placed in a tomb. You'll read resurrection eyewitness accounts that are compelling. You'll read of him appearing to Mary and the disciples without Thomas and disciples with Thomas. You'll read of him eating with his disciples. You'll read of him appearing to other people on a road. You'll read him of appearing to 500 people in one time. And you might have think, well, Mary was emotionally guided and she wanted to believe, but you don't have mass hallucinations with 500 people there. It doesn't work like that. And you can read the accounts and at the end you'll get to the point of going, what do I do with a risen Messiah? With a risen Jesus? Because if he was dead and is now alive, what do you do with that? Because it changes everything. The whole of human history is changed as a result. 
The whole of the human future is changed as a result. And I tell you, this is the core of our faith today. Now, we know this. We will go through difficult times. Some of us will have picked up on the news today of brothers and sisters in Christ in Sri Lanka who've lost their lives as churches have been bombed today. We stand with them, the ones that are left and alive. We stand with them. We know that our lives are not necessarily easier because we're following Jesus. He didn't promise us that. I'm not promising that that you can skip through fields of tulips or even run through a wheat field if you want to, as somebody illustrious may have done in their youth. Is that Theresa May? Is that what she did or something like that? You ran through a wheat field? You might want to if if that's your bag, but you, you don't need to and life, you might not be able to. Life isn't always going to be easy. People we love will die. The disciples that we're reading about in this story were not exempt from suffering. I'm not promising superficial happiness now and no problems, but I am offering, in Jesus' name, life and liberty and wholeness and hope and freedom from despair and freedom from shame and a life that continues through all eternity, that is life eternal now and continuing. This is not just hope for when you die. It's hope now. That is our hope. Life is different. We walk into everything with Jesus with us from now on. As a pastor, I hate it when people go through suffering and pain. If I could remove it, I would. My desire, if I desire anything for every single person in this room today, it's that you know Jesus more fully than you did yesterday and more fully tomorrow than you do today. It's that you know him completely and that you know the power of the resurrection. That's worth more than riches or success or desire, having your desires met. That's my prayer for each, one of, each person in this room is that we might know Jesus and the power of his death, and the power of his resurrection, and that we might live in that power. Can we pray today? I'd love to pray for us all. Just before you shut your eyes to pray, um, if you want to know Jesus in a very personal way, and you want to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, there is an opportunity to do that today. If you've never said yes to Jesus, when we pray, I'll give an opportunity, and you can say yes. We'd love to give you a simple little booklet called Why Jesus? that it just explains the Christian faith and points to the power of the resurrection. If you've really looked at this and you're on the cusp of deciding but you're not quite sure and you're quite like an intellectual approach or an investigative approach um, and, you, and you genuinely struggle with faith, we've got a couple of copies of this book, Case for Christ. Don't take this if you're already a Christian and you love Jesus and you're kind of confident in your faith but if you want them they'll be around uh, they'll be on the front row is that okay James if I leave them there three copies of this if you want them case for Christ this is a journalist looking into the evidence for the resurrection if you found yourself doubting and going ah oh, but mm, grab a copy of this uh, if you want to get one a uh, company called Eden are stocking them for just uh, just under four pounds so they're not expensive but we've got a few copies here if you want one so uh, do come and get those as well why because we want people to base their faith on the risen Lord Jesus. And I want us to have confidence in that fact. So let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Lord. Lord, I firstly pray for each one of us here that we might 
not only celebrate today, for surely we are. We're celebrating Resurrection Sunday. We're rejoicing in a risen Savior. Uh, But Lord, I pray that we might know you more and more and more, that our confidence would be in the resurrection, that our confidence would be in the risen Lord Jesus, would be in you and the difference that you make in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that we, instead of having all those negative things I spoke of earlier, can have hope and can have joy and can have faith and can be free from shame and can have life. And I thank you, Lord, that we can have confidence that you lived and you died and you rose again. And so life is never the same again. And I pray for all of us that that would be the case. Lord, I want to give a particular focus for those who maybe don't yet fully know you. Who've been sitting, a bit, maybe been invited here as a visitor or have been coming for a few times. And I've been saying, yeah, do you know what? I need to know that certainty. Lord, I pray for them too. For each person in the room who's in that category. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give them life. That you'd forgive them their sin. Because you want to. That today would be a resurrection day for them. That the old would be gone. That the new would come. That instead of sin, there would be freedom from sin. Instead of shame, there would be freedom from shame. Instead of holding on to the past, there would be walking into the new because you are risen and you are our healer and our king and our Lord. And I pray, Lord, for anybody in that category today that as they say yes to you right now, yes, I want that, Lord Jesus. Yes, I want a new start, that you'd come into their hearts and into their lives with your resurrection power in Jesus' name. Amen just so that we can pray for you um, later on. Was there anybody that said, yes, I want that. I want that resurrection power in my life for the first time today. Just so we can pray. Just stick your hand up and I'll be able to see. It's great if you you didn't, because that means we are all following Jesus. But if there was anybody, I wouldn't want to miss anyone. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Resources are here if you want to take them. um, Please do.